In his book about angels, Pastor David Jeremiah talks about an opposites quiz. You ever heard of an opposites quiz? You know, if I said the word small, you would say the word large, right? If I said darkness, you would say the word light. If I said soft, you would say hard, right? You, you get the idea. So if I, said the, the, if I said the New York Yankees, you would say Red Sox or Mets. I was curious if other things might be said, but <laughs> guys took the high road there. Well, if I said, what if I said God? You might be tempted to think Satan, but actually you would be wrong. David Jeremiah writes, Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan can't be God's opposite because Satan himself was created by God. Nobody is God's counterpart. Well put. Satan is an incredibly powerful fallen angel. Each of us is absolutely no match for him. But Satan is absolutely no match for God. And today we read about his final defeat. And I say the word final because he has been decisively defeated with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But his final defeat still remains. And the passage we have before us describes this momentous occasion when God will judge him finally and fully. So, it's hard to imagine, as I was, you know, just, as you just think about this, it's hard to imagine what a relief it is going to be, right, to have such a cancerous, sinful, uh, destructive enemy of God and his people finally removed from this world. Think about Satan. He led humanity into sin in the first place. And all through the ages, his fingerprints are upon so much of the sin and the evil and the misery all over the world and in our own lives. And to think that he will finally be gone. Does that make you want to say amen? Amen. What a day that will be indeed. So let me invite you to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, coming to the closing few chapters of this incredible book that you guys have been journeying with the last probably three or four months or so by now. Thank you for hanging in there. The last few, journey, uh, the last few chapters, we've seen the judgment of Babylon, the beast and the false prophet. Babylon, of course, symbolized the sinful fallen world order that opposes God. The beast symbolizes uh, how governments can be used to persecute the church. The false prophet symbolizes false teaching that uh, leads astray Christians and leads astray non-Christians alike. And at the end of time, we've seen the last few chapters how these enemies of God will face his judgment. And now we come to Satan, really the arch nemesis behind all of these things. It's his turn. So let's read in uh, chapter 20, the first part of our passage, which is the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. Let's read the first three verses together. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So to start, an angel comes down from heaven, has a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. You say, well, who's the angel? Well, it's not named. But I lean to think that it was probably Michael, the archangel. We see him in Revelation 12. He was part of the defeat of Satan at the, at the cross of Christ. We saw how excuse me, Michael was a part of that defeat. And here, this angel, perhaps Michael, seizes Satan, who's called a lot of names there, right? The dragon, the serpent, and the devil. He seizes Satan, throws him into a pit shuts it and seals it over him. And this binding lasts for a thousand years. Why did he bind Satan? Well, he bound him so that, as it says there, he would not deceive the nations until the thousand years ended. How does Satan deceive the nations? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the passage. But for now, just Put it in your heart, in your mind, that Satan is bound in some capacity and that when this time is up, he is going to be released, as it says, for a little while. Everybody tracking so far? So now we come to another element of the thousand years. Let's read verses 4 to 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So John sees these thrones, and seated upon these thrones are those who've been given authority. He also sees the souls of Christian martyrs. We've already encountered them. If you recall back in Revelation 6, you remember what it said in verse 9? It said, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the, soul, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And then finally, John sees those who had refused the mark of the beast, right? And so overall, I think John is seeing kind of this total picture of believers, martyrs and non-martyrs alike. Now, the key question, though, is where are they? Are they in heaven or are they on earth? I believe that this vision that John is seeing is taking place in heaven. You say, why do I say that? One revelation, the word thrones appears a lot. In fact, it appears 47 times. Did you catch that while we've been reading along? That word thrones is all over the book of Revelation. Forty of these times, the word thrones refers to heavenly thrones. God, Christ, or the 24 elders who probably are angelic beings. 
Now, four more of those occasions will appear in Revelations 21 and 22 when the new creation appears, when heaven comes to earth. So in a real sense, there's still heavenly thrones. The other three appearances of the word thrones refer to satanic thrones that are confined to their influence here on the earth. So of all of these 47 times, nowhere is a throne on earth where God's people reign at the present time. Therefore, this leads me to believe that these are thrones in heaven now, and they're occupied by Christians who have passed away, but in their spirits they are reigning with, as it says there, with Christ for a thousand years. It says in verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So believers in heaven come to life. This is the first resurrection, as it says in verse 5. I don't think it means a physical resurrection because that is described at the very end of the passage. That happens on judgment day when Jesus returns. The first resurrection is believers dying and then reigning with Christ in heaven. Now, if you also see there in verse 6, there's a lot that he is packing into these few verses. It says, those in heaven are blessed who enjoyed this first resurrection. Why are they blessed? Because they will not partake of the second death. You say, what's the second death? Scroll down a little bit to verse 14. Second death is identified as the lake of fire. The same thing as hell. In other words, believers in heaven will not face the second death. So if you are a Christian and someone dies and goes to be with the Lord, you are in the presence of God. And if you're a Christian here today, you have nothing to be concerned about judgment day. You have nothing to fear about hell. God holds you in his hand. You are secure. You are blessed. May that be firmly fixed in all of our hearts. That if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have to worry about judgment, the second death one day. You are safe. Amen? Let that just quiet the storm of your heart. Maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you've done things this past week. Maybe you're still struggling with patterns in sin. You think, man, boy, I could just lose my salvation. Scripture says if you have trusted Christ, you are safe in his arms. John also mentions that these believers in heaven are priests of God and repeats again in verse 6 how they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. You know, we've seen this in the book of Revelation several times that we are called a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom of priests now. We're going to be in the new creation. And so it only makes sense, doesn't it, that in, in heaven that they're gonna, we're going to serve in this same capacity. Those who've died, they're still serving as a kingdom of priests. And that's exactly what we find. And again, just as a kind of another footnote, when someone dies who knows the Lord, we shouldn't just simply say, well, they're in a better place and kind of leave it at that. You know, and that is important. We, we rejoice that maybe there's physical suffering isn't happening anymore. That's an important thing. But it's not like they're just hanging around with no more pain and nothing to do. 
says they're reigning with Christ now. They're alive with Christ now, and they're reigning with him. Jesus promised the church in, in, in Revelation 3.21 to everyone. It says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So you're not just hanging around bored in heaven sitting on a couch. You're reigning on a throne, continuing to do what you're doing now, but in an amplified sense. Christians need to be excited about going to be with the Lord. You're not going to be looking backwards. You're going to be looking forward to what you have promised. Because I'm trying. I'm trying. Pray for me. Thank you. So the first part is the binding of Satan, okay? Second part is the final defeat of Satan, the final defeat of Satan. Let's read verses 7 to 10 together. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when the thousand years end, Satan will be released from his prison. We just saw at the beginning there that Satan had been bound in some capacity. Now he's released, and as soon as he is, he deceives the nations. Notice all of the nations are deceived. It's it's indicated by the fact that he says the four corners of the earth. John also mentions Gog and Magog. You say, who are they? I haven't seen that on a map lately. Well, Gog and Magog are in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, where they appear in his end-time vision there. John uses them here in Revelation, I believe, to represent the nations of the world. It's just another way of saying that all of the nations of the world are gathered here at this place. And Satan gathers them for battle. It's a vast It's a vast multitude, like the sand of the sea. So many people, they march over the earth, they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, it's possible that this is an actual geographic city. Revelation, though, when it speaks of the church, often as a city, the new Jerusalem. Go back to Revelation 3.12. Jesus said, I will write on him, the believer, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, when Jesus, the new creation, is established, John is told there by the angel that he is going to show him the bride of Christ. John looks over and what does he see? He sees the new Jerusalem, the city. So in other words, I think Satan is waging war against the church in this kind of global scale here at the end of time. But when he is doing that, he has some initial success, but then he is quickly defeated. Fire came down from heaven and destroyed his allies. And I think this is talking about the return of Christ. Because when Jesus is spoken of coming again, several passages connect his return return with fire. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 1, or 1, 7 to 8 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he's coming with fire. 2 Peter 3.13 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so when Jesus comes back, he's coming in this ball of fire, so to speak, and he takes Satan and throws him into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, and forever that is where he is going to stay. Satan, gone forever. What a thought. Evil will not always reside on this earth. Amen? It will be gone. Boy, if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will. To know the enemy of God, the enemy of his people, pulled out, just like a cancerous tumor thrown away forever. All right, now let me go back to the binding of Satan. From what we have read, it is clear that this refers to Satan's power to launch a global assault on the church. Notice that as soon as Satan is released, that is immediately what he goes and does. Now, to clarify, John is not saying that Satan is bound in the sense that he is inactive. Far from it. When Jesus gives the messages to the seven churches, he mentions several times how Satan is uh, persecuting these churches, how he's leading them into false teaching and so forth. John himself is writing from exile Because of persecution, right? That he no doubt would have attributed to Satan. So John is not saying that Satan is bound in the sense that he is inactive. He is saying that he is bound in the sense that he cannot gather the nations to launch this global assault on the church, which he would love to do. And as soon as he is allowed, he does it. And I think this passage about Satan being bound fits with other New Testament teaching that speaks about Satan's power was curtailed by Jesus. Remember in Matthew 12, Jesus was having a conversation. They were accusing him of casting demons out by the power of Satan. And he said, that makes no sense. And you remember what he said about Satan? He made an analogy. He made an analogy of going into a strong man's house and doing what to him? Binding him so that then you can go into the strong man's house and take out his goods. The implication is, is that Jesus has bound Satan so that he can go in and take out people who were under his authority and control. John 12, 31, Jesus said, now will the ruler of this world be cast out, meaning Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, in the context, the works of the devil is his enslavement of people to sin. But Jesus destroys that enslavement. God's people are no longer bound to sin. We do sin, but we're not bound to it. 
Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 describes how Jesus defeated Satan by his death and took away the fear of death that Satan used to use to enslave us to it. Revelation 12 talks about how at the cross Satan was defeated so that he no longer has access to heaven to accuse us anymore. So Satan has been bound in various ways. He's still active. He's still powerful. But he has been curtailed. And one of the ways that he has been curtailed is he is no longer able to kind of mount the nations up against some type of global assault on God's people. Now at this point, I need to take five minutes and do a theological deep dive into the topic of the millennium. Throughout church history, there has been a lot of debate about the thousand years mentioned here in Revelation 20. So can you put on your scuba gear and and just go five minutes with me here? Everybody else good with that? You you awake? All right. I just want to touch on it because I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't at least say something about it. The key question is the relation between Jesus' return and the thousand years. And there are three views that Christians have held. Let me read from the ESV Study Bible so that you get an overview of what's going on here. Tried to put it up on the screen. Did it make the cut? Okay. So three views. Number one, premillennialists, those who believe Christ will return pre-before the millennium, the thousand years, think this, this thousand years, which is a Latin word, comes from millennium, right, is a future time of great peace and justice, which is usually thought to be a literal 1,000-year period that will begin when Christ returns to earth to reign on earth as a physically present king and which will include resurrected believers reigning with him. That's the premillennial view. Number two, post-millennialists, those who believe that Christ will return post or after the millennial period, think that before Christ returns to earth, the gospel will spread and triumph so powerfully that societies will be transformed and peace and justice will reign on earth for a thousand years or a long period of time after which Christ will return for the final judgments. Number three, Amillennialists, those who hold an A, you see the alpha there, alpha privative, non-literal amillennial view, think that this thousand years is the same period as the church age and that there will be no future millennium before Christ return for the final judgment. Now, all three views are held by bright, godly Christians. This is not a litmus test of orthodoxy. People should not divide over the millennium, churches, denominations, and so forth. My wife and I do not agree about the millennium, so you can still get along, okay? For those of you sitting here who have absolutely no interest in this conversation, you actually do fall into a fourth category. You are a pan-millennialist. That means that you just trust that things will pan out in the end. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to go through all the views because that's kind of more of a small group type setting. I posted, I will post when I get done with the service on our church Facebook page, a video and an article if you want to dive into that stuff. But I do want to state my view 
and hopefully persuade my wife. This might be my best shot that I ever get. I adopt the amillennial view. I believe that Revelation 20 describes the return of Christ and that the thousand years symbolize this present age. I've held this view for over 20 years based on my own study, and I would add that probably the four most influential theologians in church history all held this view. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. So there is good company here. But here are the four reasons I would say. Number one, there's this cyclical pattern of revelation that describes in these visions here things that will take place at the return of Christ. And they wrap up and then they go to a new vision. They describe different things and then they end once again with Jesus returning. And some say that there are seven different cycles of this, these types of scenes and judgments all ending with the return of Jesus. So Revelation 20 does not describe an event after the return of Jesus, but it's the culmination. It's the return of Jesus, and it's a great way to climax because it shows the defeat of Satan, the arch nemesis of the Lord. So that's the reason number one. Second, if you recall from last week, Revelation 19 describes the return of Christ. And when it does, it's, it really goes to great lengths to belabor the fact that everyone is wiped out in judgment. All people are wiped out in judgment. So if that is the case, if everyone was judged, who is left for the thousand years afterward? And why is Satan prevented from deceiving them if there's no one left? And how can Satan gather this massive army to persecute the church if everyone has been judged? To me, it makes better sense to see Revelation and 19 together describing the same event. Third, one final battle is described. There are not many battles, but one. I pointed this out along the way. In Revelation 16, 19, and 20, it describes how all the nations are gathered, and they're gathered for one battle. And literally, in the Greek, it says, the battle. The battle, okay? Not one battle and then another battle and so forth, but the battle, one final battle. And then fourth, the New Testament connects the return of Christ with the judgment and resurrection of all people. It puts it together as one package. And all of these different texts that you see in the New Testament never is the millennium actually mentioned. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 23 to 24 speaks of the resurrection. It says, Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So this passage says, Jesus has been raised. He's the first fruits, right? When he returns, he will raise up his people. Then the end comes. It speaks nothing of a millennium. There is just simply a last day when all of this happens. John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I believe it all happens together. You say, well, what about the thousand years? It says a thousand years, right? 
It does, and that is certainly a point in the favor of a premillennial view. But the number thousand can be used to describe a large indefinite amount. Psalm 50 says the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Does his ownership run out on the thousand and first hill? No, it's just a way of saying a large indefinite amount. Second Peter 3.8 says what the Lord one day is as a thousand years and one thousand years as one day. So a thousand years, it's like a day to God. You know what? A million years is like a day to God because he's eternal. Doesn't matter to him. So a thousand years can represent a large indefinite amount. And when we keep in mind that revelation is highly symbolic in its usage of numbers, it's very possible that it's just simply saying this is a large indefinite time when the saints of God are reigning with Christ in heaven. Satan has been bound. He cannot launch this all-out assault on the church, but at the very end of time, he will be allowed. He's going to mount this incredible attack on God's people throughout the world, and Jesus will return. He will defeat Satan, and then the end will come. So there you have it the millennium. Thank you for the five minutes of theological deep diving. Let's keep going here. We'll get to the final part, which is the final judgment in verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So John sees this great white throne and him who was seated on it, probably referring to God. And when he sees this, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. I think this is saying this is the end of time. This is, this is the destruction of the physical universe. Again, we saw this in Revelation 6 and 16. Same descriptions again. When Jesus comes back, the physical universe is going to end to prepare for the new creation, right? And John, then he also sees the dead, all of them standing before the throne. Everyone will be resurrected before judgment day, Christian or non-Christian. Did you know that? Everyone's going to be resurrected. Paul said this in Acts 20, 14, 15. He said, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Everyone will be resurrected, and then everyone will face judgment. People who had already died, and then people who are killed when Jesus returns, everyone will stand before God. Romans 14, verse 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So in the midst of this scene, John mentions how books are opened. And one of them is highlighted. It's called the book of life. We've seen this book in Revelation several times already. It's the Lamb's book of life. It, it contained in this book is everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away their sins. They have eternal life. What about the other books? The other books, books more than likely capture all of our deeds that we have done in our lives. Again, Christians and non-Christians alike. God knows everything about you, friend. 
everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, whether no one saw it or not, God sees it. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He takes it into account. Some people are amazed at you know, how these companies like Google and so forth can know so much about you, and it is amazing. But they don't know anything compared to what God knows about everybody. And so Christians on that day have nothing to fear because their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but they will be rewarded. There's no judgment for the Christian. Just simply rewards. And that should motivate us to serve God with everything we have, knowing that nothing will be lost. God will see it all. But at this point, John also mentions that if anyone is not written in the Book of Life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. I cannot imagine any more frightening words than are depicted right here. But there's good news. That doesn't have to be your destiny if you don't know Christ. Because you see, Jesus is that way maker, isn't he? He's the one who changes destinies. He's the one who purchases you from that place of eternal judgment. And so if you've never become a Christian and would like to do so, Jesus tells you to turn from your sins, to recognize that sin is awful, that it brings God's displeasure, and that you want to turn from it. You want to start following God's will, and you want to honor God with your life. You want to ask Him to forgive you of your sins. And He also, Jesus tells us to believe in Him. He is the Lamb of God, God in human flesh, who died for our sins so that we might be forgiven and had our sins atoned for. Salvation, friend, is not a matter of trying to think that your good somehow will outweigh your bad. God knows it all, and all of the things that we have done sinful need to be cleansed, washed, atoned for, and Jesus is the only way that you can be cleansed. So trust Him today for salvation, and you can have a complete assurance, no fear of judgment. Not because you're great, but because Jesus is great, amen? Amen. One last thing. Notice how death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Did you guys see that? Obviously, death and Hades, they're not persons, but the symbolism communicates a powerful reality. Death is judged. Death is no more. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What a moment that's going to be. No more death. Satan is gone and death is gone as well. There's a great poet in the Uh, a British poet by the name of John Donne. He was also a pastor. Unfair to have that combination in one guy there. That's pretty amazing. But he said in this poem, this amazing poem, he said, quote, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Isn't that beautiful? Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. It's powerful. Death is not mighty and powerful anymore. Christ rose again, and he promises the same for his people. We have nothing to fear. The same poem ends. One short sleep pass, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Death, thou shalt die. Death dies because God destroys it. Once he does, God will establish a new creation with no more death. 
And that's where we're going to pick up next week. The final two chapters of the book of Revelation, perhaps two of the most glorious in all of Scripture, as we get a little bit of a glimpse as to what eternity will be like with God and his people, savoring his presence for all time. You looking forward to that? Walking on the streets of gold? Celebrating with the people of God for all of eternity? It's going to be a great day. Let's come back next week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. We thank you for these glorious words, just marvelous words about the defeat of death, the defeat of Satan. Lord, fixtures here in our lives. We thank you for the glorious hope that you are a conquering king. Lord, I pray for Christians here today. Pray that we would have that assurance of salvation based on your promises. That, Lord, if we have trusted you, we don't have to sit in angst wondering if we'll lose our salvation. We will avoid the second death. We will avoid judgment because of what you have done and your promises to us. But, Lord, help us to remember that our lives matter here on this earth and you want us to live with zeal and hunger to advance your kingdom. And, Lord, I pray for someone here today perhaps who realizes they haven't followed you. They haven't believed in Christ, turned from their sins. Oh, Holy Spirit, may you help them to see today that salvation is waiting for them if they will turn from their sins and trust Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is faithful to his promises. Lord, I pray that that invitation that you extend would be received by someone who tastes of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you and we praise you so much. May these truths that we have heard this morning stir our hearts to love you with greater affection and to love our brothers and sisters with a renewed desire to bless them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.